You're listening to Democracy IRL from the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford University. We bring together thought leaders and academics for conversations on the most pressing issues facing democracy and development today. I'm your host, Francis Fukuyama. I'm really pleased to be speaking today to my colleague, Anna Guzmala Bus, or Anna GB, as we <laughs> know her uh, here at Stanford. She's a political scientist and has just written a new book, Sacred Foundations uh, The Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State. So, Anna, let's uh, just begin with a general question. What uh, induced you to write this book? <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Um, I think, you know, the, the roots of this book uh, grew out of a frustration with the sort of standard bellicist accounts of state formation, mm -hmm. which basically act as if all these institutions arise out of nothing mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the early modern period. And at the same time, I kept seeing references to parliaments that were around in the 12th century, mm -hmm. certainly in England by the 13th century of fully functioning parliaments, about sort of, you know, the way that taxation was already being implemented across Europe prior to the early modern period. Mm -hmm. So I started digging in and it turns out that in fact, a lot of the institutions that we think about as having early modern roots go way back further in time to the medieval era. And um, the church uh, in your account plays a much bigger role. Uh, I mean, traditionally people have thought that the church was the enemy of modernization and you know, represented a tradition and conservatism and so forth. But in fact, you make uh, the opposite argument that a lot of modern institutions are really rooted in the church. That's right. So I think, you know, it's not that the church wasn't conservative and anti-progress and, you know, uh, highly reactionary later on. Mm -hmm. But in this in this medieval period, roughly starting the late 11th century, the church basically acts as this institutional pioneer. Um, and it both sort of struggles or strives to prevent the rise of a hegemon in Europe. And on the one hand, and on the other hand, it develops all these new techniques of governance mm -hmm. that basically then flow into royal courts through bishops, many of whom serve both as royal administrators and as papal emissaries. So let's uh, pick apart the two parts of that. So there's this really interesting geopolitical argument That's right. that really has to do with kind of Italy and the papal states and the struggle, the, the just outright geopolitical power struggle that the church was engaged in. Why don't you explain what that was. Sure. So, you know, for the church, the sort of biggest target and the biggest rival was the so-called Holy Roman Empire, mm -hmm. which, as we know, was none of those things. Mm -hmm. But basically, the Holy Roman Empire for a long time held the church under its thumb. Mm -hmm. So the emperor would name popes, uh, various local princes would name the bishops. This, by the way, was basically Germany, modern Germany. That's right. These this were is... the states that were scattered all across Central Europe. That's right. So it's Burgundy, Germany, parts of Poland, mm -hmm. and at some points in time, northern Italy. Mm -hmm. And so the Holy Roman Empire basically holds the church under its thumb. The church struggles to gain its autonomy, and it does so starting in the 11th century with Pope Gregory VII instituting a whole slew of reforms within the church mm -hmm. and asserting his right to name the bishops, to you know, to have the cardinals name the popes, mm -hmm. to basically keep the emperors out of church politics. Mm -hmm. And in response, of course, the Holy Roman Empire has both political and territorial ambitions of its own, and it continually threatens the church. 
Um, and so the church basically, or the, you know, that's a shorthand for basically the papacy at this mm-hmm. point. The papacy basically launches a whole bunch of um, alliances, coalitions, wars by proxy, uh, secular political crusades. Mm-hmm. And they're all designed to basically engage the Holy Roman Emperor and to uh, to prevent him from making his way over the Alps and mm-hmm. basically squishing the papal states. Yeah. Um, well, there's in Italy kind itself. of a pincer movement, that's right. That uh, from the south of Italy also. That's right, because the, the, basically the kingdom of Sicily is being run by allies of the emperor, mm-hmm. and the the emperor themselves makes make their way across the Alps into Italy, northern Italy. So I think this is probably something that's not generally recognized by European historians. I mean, the importance of this struggle to keep Germany divided, essentially, uh, well, Germany and Italy both. Uh, and you actually have quite a, a quantitative apparatus demonstrating that this is the case. That's right. So I, I collected enormous amounts of data on both mm-hmm. papal and secular conflict. Um, and it turns out that papal conflict, if, if a ruler engages with the Pope in kind of an armed conflict of some sort, mm-hmm. not an excommunication, nothing like that, but literally sort of, you know, they are uh, the target of a papal uh, war by proxy. They are sort of seen as a papal enemy. They're attacked by papal forces. Then they're much more likely to not only be fragmented, but to stay fragmented throughout the sort of early modern period as mm-hmm. well. And so what the popes are basically doing is sort of ensuring that the Holy Roman Empire and, because of this, northern Italy, stay fragmented and don't consolidate the way that France does, the way that Spain does. Or England. Or England, at absolutely. At early point. And England is you know, a very, very early centralizer in mm-hmm. this story. And I think, you know, what's what's interesting is that a lot of people have noted that the fragmentation of Europe is what makes it unique, right? We don't have these large landmass-based mm-hmm. empires as you do in China or in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. But nobody's really sort of, you know, examined why exactly this happens. Mm-hmm. It was kind of taken for granted that this is simply, these are simply the legacies of the collapse of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. rather than sort of examine how there was an active agent who was very determined to keep that uh, right. fragmentation going. Basically have the struggle in which the papacy is trying to fragment Europe. I mean, I suppose there are other explanations. One of them actually is climate and geography, that Europe is cut up by forests. I mean, I, this is something I think a lot of people don't realize, that Germany was just one gigantic forest, and the Huns, or not the Huns, but the Mongols actually couldn't get into Europe because they couldn't ride their ponies you know, through all that woodland, and there's a lot of rivers and mountains and so forth. So I would suspect there's probably some geographical reasons for that fragmentation. Plus, you got this big island just off the, you know, the continent that acts as a balancer. But it's still quite uh, remarkable that Italy and Germany both stay fragmented for as long as they do. That's right. And and even as the church weakens, what Mm -hmm. basically happens is that the emperors expend so much energy and so many resources on attempting to basically get to the papacy mm-hmm. and to wage sort of new other wars that they that in the meantime there's a power vacuum that's created in northern Italy mm-hmm. and in Germany itself that a lot of sort of local nobles and local princes who basically to whom the emperor makes concessions mm-hmm. and who then grab that power and refuse to give it back. Mm-hmm. So by the time that the empress have realized that you know they don't in fact have a consolidated centralized state apparatus it's too late. Mm-hmm. There's simply no way of doing that. So there's a lot of institutional innovation that occurs on the levels of princes and bishoprics, mm-hmm. but it never amounts to a consolidated centralized state. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the geopolitical dimension. Now let's talk about the institutional dimension. So there's several modern institutions that many people 
vaguely think, you know, came about in the early modern period or after the Reformation, but you argue that actually the precedents for this and the models were actually set much earlier. That's right. So, for example, we tend to think of taxation as the sort of necessary response to these incredibly costly early modern wars. And in fact, Charles Tilley and the sort of whole vaunted um, and very rich Balazs tradition basically argue that these very costly, very bloody uh, early modern wars required taxation on the one hand and some kind of a forum in which nobles couldn't negotiate with the king's mm -hmm. parliaments. Mm -hmm. And so these are basically exigencies, right? They're sort of functional responses to the need for costly warfare. But in fact, if you look further back, taxation arises largely out of crusading, mm. right? By the Third Crusade, you have papal emissaries hand in hand with local administrators attempting to collect funding. And what's interesting about it is that this is direct taxation, mm -hmm. right? They literally go from household to household. They audit. They go, you know, there's this whole mechanism for collecting the money and funneling it upwards, all of which arises basically in the late 12th century, long before these early modern wars. Uh -huh. um, and kings then adopt this and basically mm -hmm. try to sort of, you know, use these same techniques to extract their own taxes. Yeah. And if we look at parliaments, those two arise largely as fora, as Deborah Bukayanis uh, reminds us, to dispense justice. Uh, and, you know, they're basically kings compel nobles to attend in order to settle disputes and whatnot. But these come online in the 12th century. Um, and by the 13th century, late 13th century, the English parliament acquires much of its representative functions. It ascends to taxation. It has representatives from both the shires and the towns um, and functions as a, you know, a relatively powerful source of executive constraint on the king. And that's, you know, 1295. That's mm -hmm. the model parliament. That's mm -hmm. long before early modern warfare. But the precedent, uh, I take it, was set by the church itself that had That's right. various synods and councils and so forth and created this tradition of, you know, the community collectively gathering to discuss issues. That's right. So by the 10th century, the church is already conducting sort of, you know, Europe-wide councils mm -hmm. where representatives from the various bishoprics, from various cathedral chapters, from towns, all come to Rome. Mm -hmm. And the idea is because since the church is starting to tax its clergy, the idea is that in order that those who will be taxed have to assent to the taxes. Mm -hmm. This is the quod omnis tangent rule mm -hmm. um, that becomes then a model for assenting to taxation in secular parliaments as well. Mm -hmm. The church also introduces the notion of binding representation. You can't have all the bishops come to Rome. You can't have every, you know, every cathedral member come to Rome. But you can send representatives who have full and binding powers. So which means that whatever the church synod decides, and whatever these representatives assent to will then be enforced and implemented back mm -hmm, home. Mm -hmm. And again, that becomes a critical way in which European parliaments differ from the various councils and assemblies that we see elsewhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. And finally, the church, you know, largely out of expedience, comes up with supermajority rules. Mm -hmm. you know, the, in the medieval world, consensus and unanimity were sort of the normative way of, of doing things. Mm -hmm. And the church basically decides that what we need is to have the bigger and better part the you know, supermajority or the majority of the, uh, the collective mm -hmm. make these decisions because it's just that much faster. And as a result, as, for example, Melissa Schwartzberg points out, once the church adopts this rule, they no longer have the problem of competing popes uh, you know, for 200 years. They basically don't have the problem of competing popes and mm -hmm. you know, ill-decided elections and unclear results. Yeah. 
Well, I guess if the College of Cardinals has to have unanimity, that's going to be right. pretty hard to make uh, any kind of decision. That's right, as the yeah. Polish Diet finds yeah. out repeatedly <laughs> to, right. its, uh, to its benefit. This okay, so then my favorite topic really is the origins of the rule of law. Absolutely. And so the church obviously plays a big role in that as well. That's right. And here, you know, I owe a lot uh, to your earlier analyses. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. This is, you know, as you and Harold Berman and others have shown, this is, you know, where the church has you know, a fundamental impact on the respect for the rule of law, mm-hmm. right? And the idea that the law is above individuals. Actually, so you should probably tell the historical story about the investiture conflict and the discovery of the Justinian Code. I suspect that this is a aspect of European history that most people don't really understand. Sure. So in this struggle, the early struggle between Pope Gregory VII and the Holy Roman Emperors, what basically happens is that one sort of, you know, one signal episode is the so-called investiture conflict, which is nominally about who gets to name the bishops, but fundamentally is about the boundaries between church and state and their respective spheres of authority. And during this conflict, two things happen. One is that we have see the rediscovery of Roman law, these codices that were there since this, you know, they're compiled in the 7th and 6th century. And so these codices get rediscovered. Um, and they're basically, I think they were held in a monastery of some sort, and mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, they come up. And those that Roman law very quickly starts to be used already in the investiture conflict as a weapon. Mm-hmm. That, look, I can point to this statue, and this is an ancient statue, and this clearly says that you don't have this power and this authority. Mm-hmm. And the church, by dint of having more human capital and more expertise, is much better able to wield this weapon initially than the emperor's who very quickly catch on that this is a very useful thing to know about as well. Mm-hmm. And so what follows is, on one hand, the use of legal arguments instead of simply warfare, mm-hmm. the and the coming online... Yeah, of, I like the idea that you're not going to have trial by combat anymore. That's, that's probably right. a big advance for human civilization. That's uh, right. And so and subsequently, that's right, because of the church's active role, both in um, helping to rediscover Roman law and in uh, systematizing canon law, mm-hmm. what happens is that the two basically fuse to become European civil law. They're taught coterminously at universities. There isn't much of a difference between the two of them as far as most uh, legal scholars of the time are concerned. And this means that canon law starts to influence civil law as well. And so one of the mm-hmm. things you mentioned was that trial by ordeal mm-hmm. basically gets eliminated because the clergy cannot shed blood. And many of the judges are, in fact, a clergy. They're bishops and you know, higher-ranking priests. Mm-hmm. And so trial by ordeal gets eliminated. There's a whole new evidentiary procedure that gets introduced where there's basically you know, some rudimentary rules of chain of evidence and mm-hmm. who gets to evaluate the evidence and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And above all, this, you know, the founding of numerous law schools. Right. The first university in Bologna in 1088 is a law school, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. scholars from across Europe start to flock to these law schools. They're highly in demand. Both secular and religious courts really want their own legal experts in waging these sort of, you know, various, uh, these various conflicts. And in the highly profitable um, sector of adjudicating disputes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want, if you have a dispute, you basically turn to your local bishop who has his own legal expert. If that doesn't work, you can then appeal to the Pope. And each time along the way, there are fees collected, there are legal expert, experts consulted, there are documents written. Mm-hmm. And so we have this explosion of law in the 12th century um, that owes a lot to the sort of initial conflict between uh, the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire, and to the rediscovery of these bodies of law. Yeah. So one of the um, 
big issues, I think, in the creation of modern institutions is the idea of autonomy, mm-hmm. that not everything should be fused under a single authority. That's right. And so you have that obviously happening in the geopolitical sphere where you've got all these little statelets. But it seems to me with the import, you know, it's particularly important with regard to rule of law because you need to have a separate judicial institution that's not under the thumb of the emperor. And this is really what happens in Europe. But if you say what, what makes an institution autonomous, it's a big structure, right? I mean, uh, these law schools produce lawyers, but then who gets to determine who's a lawyer and who's qualified? Well, they have the autonomy to make those decisions. The emperor doesn't you know, get to intervene. So the emperors and the popes don't get to intervene, but they do sort of race to charter universities, mm-hmm. right? Because that basically means that this university is going to be protected by the emperor, and the emperor, in effect, uh, says that you, you're yes. a well-qualified legal expert um, if it's a imperial, char- imperially chartered university. But it's a competitive charter. That's right, right absolutely. So. so both popes, and, and in fact, many universities have both. Mm-hmm. Um, why not, you know, why not have both at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's really fascinating. And I've always thought that, you know, if you think about what's the, you, you think about the modern state, uh, the rule of law, and then democratic accountability, uh, it seemed to me, and that's, I think this is what I wrote about in my political order series, that in Europe, the deepest of those institutions actually was law in many right. ways, that, you know, the dem- democracy stuff doesn't really appear till the late 18th, 19th centuries. Um, the modern state, uh, you know, as you were arguing, has its origins in medieval Europe, but, you know, the full Weberian flowering of that state doesn't really occur until uh, after the early modern period. But law is there right from the beginning. That's and in right. a way, when you talk about what is Western civilization, it's really a civilization built upon this legal structure. That's right. And, and you know, I think there are sort of two components to this. One is the primacy of law, mm-hmm. right? That law settles disputes in which war doesn't, mm-hmm. right? And so this the, it, law acquires this enormous legitimacy as a dispute resolution mechanism, mm-hmm. as a way of ensuring property rights, as a way of ensuring contracts, mm-hmm. as a way of even regulating the relationship between parents and children and mm-hmm. you know their, their community. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing that happens. The second thing, and I think it's an importance of condition that helps this to be sustained, is the competition between between jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So people can go to their local court, but they can, you know, their, their local lord mm-hmm. to receive justice. They can go to a royal court mm-hmm. or they can go to the local canon court. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are these amazing statistics from England where this is particularly well documented, where something like 40% of cases that should have gone to royal courts mm-hmm. wound up in canon courts because the justice that was being delivered there was much faster mm-hmm. um, and was cheaper. Yeah. And so for efficiency sake, so you basically have these efficiency gains in the delivering of justice. Mm-hmm. as the two sort of jurisdictions start to compete yeah. with each other. It's a complicated story. So, you know, there is this uh, North Weingast uh, famous article basically attributing the origins of, you know, real modern property rights and rule of law to something that went on in the 17th century, you know, That's the right. Glorious Revolution. And that just struck me as historically wrong. Uh, in England, they had this... Um, institution under Henry II. So you're really talking about what the 11th century or so, where you had this um, uh, practice called the Assize of Novel Decesson, in which a uh, non-elite tenant of a a lord could actually sue for unjust, you know, possession of his property. 
the Lord took something away. You know, he took away a field and you could actually go to a court and contest uh, at a very different power status. Uh, you know, all the way back then, uh, at this very early point in, in the Middle Ages. And so that tradition of having a separate set of legal institutions that puts limits on power. You know, in fact, this is something that I think a lot of people don't understand. The Magna Carta, one of the demands of the barons was that, uh, you know, their tenants had had common law privileges, but they didn't because they That's were right. direct vassals of the king. And they said, oh, we want to be treated just like, you know, these peasants, you know, we want That's to have right. common law rights as well. So it was a very interesting, um, you know, I mean, this is why European development just seems to me so different from what's going on in so many other parts of the world, because you do have this early emphasis on, on law and the autonomy of law and so forth. That's right. And, Although, you know, and law becomes, in effect, a way for kings to become legitimate. Mm -hmm. And so law serves both to legitimate kings because it's you know the kingship is very closely associated with you know the uh, the production of justice mm -hmm. and delivering of justice to its people a just king is legitimate king on the one hand on the other hand law becomes a way of broadcasting power mm -hmm. so one of the ways in which the england state grows so powerful is that it sends basically itinerant judges into all corners of England, and they are the king's men, right? Mm -hmm. They are explicitly there on royal orders and with royal authority to deliver justice. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear to everyone that this is royal justice that's mm -hmm. being delivered mm -hmm. um, to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a very powerful assertion of royal power, and it mm -hmm. sort of binds the country together yeah. um, in ways that you, know, you don't see, for example, in the Holy Roman Empire, where the justice is much more localized. Mm -hmm. So maybe the last issue I'd like to talk to you about is one that may not appeal to everybody, but because it's a little <laughs> bit methodological. Um, you know, in political science, uh, we've had this prolonged period where everything is highly, uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's basically the influence of modern economics, you know, highly quantitative. Uh, and it means that people don't pay much attention to, you know, what's called historical institutionalism. I mean, it was complex stories about how actually institutions arose. It seems to me that your book is a nice mixture of the two because you do have a quantitative analysis, uh, uh, you know, with regard to conflict and the prevalence of conflict. But, you know, in a way, the real story is this very complex historical one reminding people of a lot of, you know, the origin of institutions that, you know, were not obvious. Right. So I think, you know, there are two things to be said about that. I mean, one is that, um, you know, I, I think a fully fledged historical institutionalist account would have traced these roots all the way through the modern period. Mm -hmm. And not, I'm not making that claim at all. I'm really mm -hmm. suggesting that, you know, there are these very suggestive roots. Mm -hmm. um, but secondly, there's a whole sort of, you know, flourishing of a new literature and historical political economy mm -hmm. where you have scholars who work on, you know, colonial India or Chin China, um, looking back and gathering data from those sources mm -hmm. to make arguments that are very historical in nature, mm -hmm. but that also rely on more modern econometric techniques. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's, you know, even among sort of the the, sort of ec the economics crowd or the econometric crowd, there's a realization that, you know, to understand what's going on now, we really have to go back into history. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, you know, I think historical institutionalism has become part, in, you know, part of the fabric, part, you know, part and parcel yeah. of the fabric yeah. of modern uh, social scientific analyses. Well, I think the two really complement each other. Absolutely. I mean, there are things that you can't show without the quantitative analysis, but there's also... You know, when you actually look and, and at the actual historical mechanisms by which some ancient practice 
uh, is related to a modern practice unless you actually have some, you know, historical evidence right. that there was some continuity in institutions. You, you know, all you see is a correlation, but you don't actually know that that was the real cause. That's right. I think this is where, you know, a close reading of history is so important to elucidate the mechanisms by which these correlations actually come alive and have any causal meaning at all. Mm -hmm. um, instrumental variables won't get us there, right? Yeah. They will still yeah. won't tell us how these things mattered. Um, they can only tell us that there was a, some kind of a causal relationship, mm -hmm. but what it was specifying that, I think, requires a much closer reading of history and the context. Well, I think your book uh, does an admirable job of teaching us all that. Uh, I'm reminded of a saying of Gordon Brown. He said, the rule of law is very hard to establish, especially in the first 500 years. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I think that you've shown that it's actually more the first thousand years that uh, are required in a way to shape these institutions. So, Anna, thank you very much. Thank uh, you so much for having me. And thanks for writing the book. Thank you. Thank you so much.